My grandfather was a sharecropper. In the early 1930s, my grandfather Roy Haskell Moore was unable to make the mortgage payments on his small farm in southwest Oklahoma because of climate and wind issues, failing cotton crops, the Dust Bowl, and he lost his farm. But he wouldn't do as most of his relatives did. Most of them left and went to California with tens of thousands of other Okies. So he stayed, he and his brother, and he became a sharecropper. This meant that he moved out of his house that he owned into a, a little shack that did not have electricity or indoor plumbing. And he farmed another man's cotton farm, and he gave 50% of the crop to the owner of that land, and he kept 50% for himself and tried to eke out a living that way. This is how my mom grew up in that little sharecropper's cabin. And it was 25 years before my grandfather could purchase his own small farm again. This system was one, though, that was actually profitable for everyone. My grandfather was always thankful for it. The landowner received revenue from his land without having to work it himself. And my grandfather had a place to live and work and could feed his family if he worked hard. That's my family history. Today, Jesus is going to tell us that you cannot understand the family history of Israel if you don't understand the sharecropper illustration. I want you to listen carefully, and I hope you have your Bible open to Luke 20, and not only to Luke 20, but we're going to see how so much of the rest of Scripture segues into this as well. This story, it turns out, is a familiar story that's told in the Old Testament and then even in the rest of the New Testament following. Now, what I want you to see is I want you to carefully listen to how God the Son, the Lord Jesus, viewed Israel's stewardship and what their place is now in the new covenant. We are at that point, as we are seeking to explain and apply several of the parables of Christ, we are at that point in our context in Luke 20 in the Lord's ministry where he's in the last week of his earthly ministry before he goes to the cross. He knows that. Nobody else in this story knows that. And today we will hear Jesus tell what up until that point is the 1,800-year history of Israel in one simple agricultural illustration. Let's seek the Lord's help now. O oh, Sovereign Lord, our ability to shroud and obscure Scripture is so keen that we will miss the point of your word unless you send the Holy Spirit to graciously open our eyes and guide us into truth. We ask for his revealing and illuminating ministry now. We ask that he would lift up Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the first thing you need to understand is if you're looking at Luke 20 verses 9 through 19, is you need to understand the story that Jesus tells. Now again, on one of the days of what the church has come to call Holy Week, probably Tuesday, before our Lord's arrest on Monday, Thursday night. Probably on Tuesday, Jesus has just had a confrontation with the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, the 70 leaders. And the Sanhedrin, of course, is made up of scribes, the chief priests, the leading elders. And in the preceding context, if you just glance at the first eight verses of Luke 20, Jesus has just had a conversation 
with or a confrontation with them over the issue of authority. And as soon as Jesus silences the Sanhedrin, look carefully at verses 9 through 19. He tells them a parable, a classic narrative to a group of angry, edgy rulers. Now you'll notice in verse 19 at the end, this whole story that Jesus tells they recognize immediately that this story, this parable, is weaponized. It is barely hidden. They know that Jesus is not only talking to them, but about them. And so listen carefully to the 10 or 12 elements of this story. Because in it, what you have is the entire history of the Old Covenant taken up in just a few sentences. Listen to the story. First element, a landowner plants a vineyard. From an agricultural standpoint, Israel is divided into two distinct types of lands, hillside and flatland. Flatland is where you plant grain in Israel. Hillsides are where you plant vineyards. So in order to plant a vineyard, you have to do a lot of work. You have to terrace the hill, remove the stones, then take those stones and build retaining walls to hold the terraces. It takes a lot of work to build a vineyard in Israel. Second element of the story. This landowner leases it to a group of sharecroppers, tenant farmers, who are to produce fruit for him. They have a covenant, an agreement, that both parties will be faithful to hold up their end of the bargain. Third element of the story. The owner goes away to a far country. This was common in first century Palestine to have absentee landlords. In fact, one historian writes that the whole of the upper Jordan Valley and a large portion of the Galilean uplands were in the hands of foreign landlords during Jesus' time. And so this element of an absentee landlord was very familiar to all the hearers. Fourth element, an agricultural note. It takes four or five years to produce real fruit in a vineyard. So there's necessarily going to be a waiting period where the tenant farmers pay nothing. Fifth element. These tenant farmers have a great life. They can work the way the land they want. They can be creative. They don't have to pay for the land, but they get the benefit of it. It's a sweet deal for them. Sixth element of the story. When the time comes... The owner sends a servant, the Greek word here is doulos, to the tenants seeking his fruit. Seventh element. The servant is beaten. And he's sent back to the owner empty-handed. He comes back to the owner bloody and bruised, stating that the tenants have no intention of giving any fruit to the owner. This, of course, is illegal and criminal. Now, as you hear this story, the beating of the first servant, you immediately think, these folks are going to get it. Next element. It gets worse. This happens three separate times. On three occasions, the sharecroppers beat the owner's servants and send them back empty-handed. Next element of the story. The long-suffering owner thinks, I'll send my only beloved son. They'll respect him. Next element, the tenants seize this opportunity as their moment. In a flash of wicked stupidity, they think if they kill the owner's son, they will now have uncontested ownership of the vineyard, and so they do just that. They kill the son. 
Final element of the story. This is the, the story part. The owner comes, destroys the tenants, and gives the vineyard to others who will produce fruit for him. That's the story. It's a parable. It's an allegory. And most of the elements in this story represent the history of God's dealings with the people of Israel. Now, let's identify the types in this story. All the different representations that are happening. The first is the owner. We see this in verse 9, and then he's called the owner again in verse 13. This, of course, is God the Father. Israel was chosen by the Father to be a people for his own possession. He is the owner. The second type is the planting of the vineyard, the choosing and settling of Israel. Look at verse 9 once again. We read, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and that's, that's all you need to know. The, the planting of the vineyard, the choosing and settling of Israel, from the days of Abraham, 1,800 years earlier, God had made them a great nation. He'd given them a, a patriarchal heritage. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph in their bloodlines. He'd given them a law. He had taken them from bondage in Egypt, and he had given them a land. He had established a priesthood. He had given them divinely mandated worship. And then, to top it all off, he had made covenants with them. A covenant of grace. And the symbol of all of this was a vine. <clears throat> when Sandy and I lived in Las Vegas, you may not know this. Immediately you're thinking, Las Vegas? What were you doing in Vegas? I promise we were doing ministry there. But we had... Uh, pastored Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church, and about halfway through our time there, our church grew to the point we couldn't exist in a, in a lease situation anymore, and so the Lord dropped a Jewish synagogue in our lap. The, the rabbi told us it was the only time in the history of real estate transactions where Gentiles got the better of Jews in a real estate transaction. So <clears throat> we were thankful for the building. They asked $3 million, We paid them $1 million. But this is a, a glorious building. I think Sandy scrubbed every inch of the inside of that building personally by herself. Well, the building, the most amazing feature was the door. The door was 16 feet high. It had been made of acacia wood from Israel, and it was carved. The doors were massive. They actually came and got them just before we left, and that was part of the contractual deal. They put it in their new building. But this door had emblazoned onto it a sculpting of a vine on this door. And I always wondered if these folks, when they came there, even had a clue what that meant. A moment ago we read Isaiah chapter 5 where the Lord says Israel is his beloved but wayward vine. But this is not the only time. I want you to see how deep this idea of a vine goes in the Old Testament. Keep one finger here and look at Psalm 80. Again, asking you to roll up your sleeves and do a little bit of work with me. Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verse 8. The psalmist writes, You have brought a vine out of Egypt, speaking of Israel, of course. You have cast out the nations and planted it. 
You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. And the the psalmist goes on for several verses using this picture, this metaphor of a vine. Well, this is not the only time. And I want you to get just a taste because this is all over the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah 2, the Lord is speaking of Israel again as a vine gone bad. A vine vine producing bad fruit. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord says to Israel in verse 20, I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? In fact, so common was the symbol of the vine for Israel that the very temple where Jesus was standing, 2,000 years before the one in Las Vegas, the very temple where Jesus was standing in Jerusalem had a richly carved grapevine 70 cubits high sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. The sculpted branches and leaves were of gold and the grapes were of costly jewels. The symbol of the vine had immense meaning in the eyes of the Jews, but it seems as though none of them wanted to reckon with all of these condemnatory texts in the Old Testament that said, sure, you're God's vine, but you're a wayward vine. You're producing bad fruit. Look back to our story. We have the other element of the story, the vine dressers. We meet them first in verse 9. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers. And this is represented by the Sanhedrin. They're hearing this parable. These are the men who are responsible for spiritual care for the nation that were supposed to see that spiritual fruit was produced. And so they were to feed the people of God, prune them, guard them, love them. But they'd been wretchedly inept. That's the 1800-year history of Israel. A history of opportunities neglected, privileges abused, trust betrayed. God had gotten no fruit. No fruit for 18 centuries from this vineyard that he had so carefully planted. What he had sought from this vineyard was faith, obedience, and worship. And what he had gotten was rebellion and idolatry. Now there's one other element that you need to be aware of, and that is the servants. Look to our text in verse 10, 11, and 12, and you'll notice on three occasions the owner of the vineyard sends a servant to the wayward people. And each time the servants were ignored, their word was ignored, and they were beaten and sent back to the owner. Now, everybody understands who this is. This is the prophets that God had sent. Because the religious leaders of Israel have for 1,800 years systematically rejected God's messengers the prophets. Now this too, this too is a major recurring theme in the Old Testament. That God would send prophets who were not listened to. So let me demonstrate this to you. Look at 2 Chronicles 36 and I want to just I want you to see how all of these elements that Jesus are are using, none of them are new elements. All of them are old elements deeply rooted in the Old Testament. So in 2 Chronicles 36 occurring hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ. 
Notice what we're told in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16. We read, The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. And so all that Jesus is doing by telling his parable, it's almost like he's quoting Second Chronicles 36. Let me show you another example, because I want you to see this idea of the vine deeply rooted in Old Testament. Every Jew should have known this. The idea of the prophets, the servants of God, the prophets coming and warning, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah 25. And again, this is the history of Israel, ignoring and rejecting the prophets. Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 4, the Lord says, Jeremiah 25, 4, The Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, And dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own hurt. Think of the sad history of Israel and the prophets and how shamefully the prophets had been treated All throughout Israel's history, Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets, was thrown into a pit. Jewish tradition says he died by stoning. The same tradition says Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was rejected in stone. Micah punched in the face. And the litany goes on and on. Jesus even brings up the the hypocritical memorialization of the prophets in Matthew 23 when he's pronouncing his seven woes. And he says, oh, you make such a big deal of the prophets. And and you say, look, they're the, the tombs of the prophets. But your fathers killed them all. And which of the prophets haven't you killed? And so Jesus concludes in Matthew 23 and he says, go ahead. Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Well, then you have in our story... The final element, the son of the owner. Look at verse 13. Where the father, and here you have the musings of the father speaking about the son. In verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Do you see what Jesus just started doing? He's telling a story about himself. If the parable is about a beloved son, and that's what we're told in verse 13, then it must be about him, for he is the most beloved of all sons. Remember what the Father said from heaven down to earth, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. It's impossible to hear these words of verse 13. When the Father speaks of his son being the beloved son. It's impossible to hear these words and not have... Biblical allusions leap into your mind, such as Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Or Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I want you to stop and think for a moment. Can you see the boldness and courage of our Lord Jesus? 
He is describing to the Sanhedrin. They're standing all around him. He sees the redness of their face. He sees the anger rising. He knows exactly what their intent is that week. This is probably Tuesday. And by Thursday night, he'll be arrested. He's describing to the Sanhedrin who they are and what they're doing. And then he goes on to prophesy what will happen to him. And he gives his own death announcement. Look at verse 15. We read, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What Jesus is stating there is not much of a word of prophecy because he's saying this on Tuesday, within three days he'll be dead. As we read verse 13, you hear the owner engaged in a soliloquy. He's considering what he should do in light of these rebels' rejection of his servants, the prophet. I want you to get a tiny peek into the character of the first person of the Trinity. Notice what we hear him doing. He is so long-suffering, so desirous of blessing and saving his children, even though three of his servants, the prophets, have been rejected and harmed. Notice his long-suffering. And so he asks, what shall I do? Martin Luther, in his famous sermon on this text, said, If I were the father, I know what I would have done. I would have kicked this world to pieces. What makes sense to do? Look at verse 13. When the father asks himself, musing, What shall I do? What makes sense to do? Three times? You send servants? Here's what makes sense. Send in the troops. Exterminate these no-goods, right? Not this owner. He sends his one and only son. He sends his beloved son. And what Jesus is describing in these chilling words is his own imminent death in two to three days. When Jesus speaks of these people, look what words he puts in their mouth in verse 14. When he speaks of these people who say, let's kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. This is the very essence of sin that Satan tempted Adam with back in the garden. It is man's wicked desire to be as God in the sense of being independent of him and refusing to live under his sovereign rule. But it's more than that. Their crime is not just homicide, it's deicide. Wicked men desire to rid the universe of the Son of God. And just like those wicked rulers we read about in Psalm 2, They want to be forever done with God. Now notice well the the distinctions Jesus is making. A couple of important distinctions for this parable. First of all, all the prophets who came before were servants, but he's the son. And then notice as well, these leaders who he's looking at right now, the vine dressers, they're tenants. But he is the joint heir and owner with the Father. Jesus appears following all the prophets because he is the final prophet. And so sure enough, the Father sends his son and they kill him. They kill the Lamb of God. They kill the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. They kill the one who said to them, come to me for I am meek and lowly. They killed the one who had held their little children in his arms and blessed them. J.C. Ryle, preaching on this passage, said, Men never saw God face to face but once 
when Jesus walked on the earth. They saw him holy, harmless, and undefiled, going about doing good. Yet they wouldn't have him in their midst. They rebelled against him and killed him at the first opportunity. And so Ryle says, let's dismiss from our minds the idea that there's an innate good in our hearts. Right now, perhaps you're playing mental chess with me and you said, and you want to excuse yourself and you say, well, if I would have been there, I would not have screamed with the crowds, crucify him, give us Barabbas. My friend, you and I would have done just the same. You see, the natural man is at enmity with God. He would kill God the Son if he could. Right now, this text is holding up a mirror to your heart and showing you yourself. The seeds of such sin are in every one of our hearts today. I want you to notice, I want to move past the death of Christ, and I want you to notice what Jesus says about the future history of Israel. Because what he's done up until verse 14 is he tells what the history of Old Covenant Israel has been for 1,800 years. And so now Jesus begins to look forward after the cross. And so Jesus poses the obvious question in verse 15. What will the owner of the vineyard do to these rebels? And Jesus' answer is a two-part assertion. Look very clearly at what Jesus states will be the future of the covenant role of the Jews, largely. First, God will avenge by destroying Israel. Look at verse 16. God will avenge by destroying Israel in 70 A.D. Jesus is here prophesying the end of the Jewish theocracy, the old covenant, the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and any distinct status for the Jewish people. And then second, and this is our cause today to praise God. Look at verse 16. Look at those words, because here's where your name is in the parable. Do you see it there in verse 16? My name's there. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to, here's your name, others. That's you and I, to others. Jesus is making the amazing claim that God will now turn to the Gentile world as the focus of redemptive history. Now, I want you to notice how clearly the Sanhedrin members standing around him see it. They get it. Because look how they respond in verse 16. They know what he's saying. They respond with, certainly not, more literally, God forbid, or may it never be. To them, it was unthinkable that God's purposes could be transferred to any other people other than them. Of course, Jesus' words all come true. Because 40 years after these words were spoken, Jerusalem is torn to the ground. The priesthood and temple were destroyed. Religiously, Israel ceased to count. God put the care of his kingdom in other hands. He led out his vineyard to others who'd been aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. That's the language Paul uses in Ephesians 2. And there, from them, fruit has been found. That's the story of the new covenant. How do we apply this word? Let me make several applications to us from this glorious and brilliant and sobering parable from the lips of our Lord Jesus. 
One is, I want you to notice the coven, the, the continuity of God's covenantal purposes being taught. Notice what Jesus, the Son, tells us, that he follows the prophets in the same path. He's not doing something different than them. What had the prophets done for 1,800 years? They had come and they had announced to the people of God that God was seeking for fruit. And what does Jesus do? He follows in that same vein and footstep. Covenantal continuity. Another application. This parable, if it teaches anything, it teaches the patience of God. The long-suffering of God. Did you notice how the, the owner was not content with sending one servant, a prophet, or two, but he sent three. And actually, if you know the history of Old Covenant Israel, he sent dozens and dozens of prophets. And then on top of that, he sent his son. Jehovah sent prophets to Israel for 1,800 years, almost two millennia, pleading, calling, warning. But before you wag your heads at the Jews, my friend, think of how patient God has been with you. You know the long-suffering of God every day. And this parable is teaching us that. I want you to notice as well our Lord's dependence upon the written word. When he's seeking to buttress up his arguments, look what he does in verse 17. He quotes the Old Testament to them. And as always, he cites what is written. And notice that the ignorance of it is deadly. Because what Jesus is doing, he's taking a biblically familiar theme. The vine, the prophets. And these men just look at him sort of dumbfounded. I don't know what you're talking about. Two of the most common themes in the Old Testament. The prophets and the vine. And even here, Jesus quotes scripture. His ministry was one of dependence upon the written word. Any ministry that seeks to operate outside of the written word, the canon of scripture, is doomed to failure. Another application you should get is the deep corruption of human nature is being clearly taught. The conduct of the wicked vine dressers is a vivid picture of man's dealings with God. Listen, my friends, carefully. Those of you who would seek to soft-pedal total depravity. If men will kill the Holy Son of God, they will do anything. Never be surprised at the depths of sin you see in the culture, and especially the depths of sin you see in your own heart. Another application we're being taught is the progressive nature of sin is being taught. The tenants started off, you'll notice, beating some of the servants, but that wasn't enough. They ended up becoming murderers of the son. The principle of sin is the diminishing, the law of diminishing returns. The way you sinned yesterday is now boring, and you have the deep need to go deeper, further, faster, and that's just what we see here. And so, my friend, when you think of the nature of sin, it will speed up, it will accelerate. That was the history of Israel. And there's another application about sin. And that is the irrational nature of sin is being taught as well. Do these vine dressers actually think they can get away with killing the landowner's son? Does Israel think it can stone the prophets and get away with it? Sin is utterly irrational and foolish. Do you really think you can sin boldly? 
and there be no consequences? My friend, you're irrational. Another application. No evil power can remain in power long. This is the historical lesson of Israel's corrupt leaders. God will sovereignly overthrow corrupt men and replace them. Wicked power, and this is a lesson we in our nation, because we would like to think that our life, our constitution, our history, our borders, all of those things will go on forever. My friend, learn from the nation of Israel. Wicked power is always limited in its duration. Always. God topples wicked nations. Final application. If men do not bring forth fruit, they will be called to account. Did you hear that? If men don't bring forth fruit, they'll be called to account. Just as Israel was held accountable and liable for all of their covenant privileges. So you and I will be held accountable for all the Sabbaths and sermons and sacraments we've been given. This is the message Paul preaches in Romans 11. Gentiles will go the same way of unbelieving Israel if they do not produce fruit. So let me ask you today, what fruit are you producing? Character, holiness, service. God is the owner of the vineyard is looking for fruit. Let's pray together. How we praise you for the, the wideness of your mercy, O oh Father. That you have now opened the way of salvation, not just to the Jews, but to all nations. And so, Lord, deepen our gratitude and our zeal to produce the spiritual fruit that you have commanded and thus glorify you. Give us grateful hearts for the new covenant and the mediator of the new covenant, in whose name we pray, even Jesus. Amen.